Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for The Prairie Times. My name is Heidi Pate. Our first story is by Avis Jensen called Love Me Tender. In late November in 1956, Mother piled me into our new yellow Buick for a surprise outing for my nine-year-old self. Though a tomboy, I had another passion I shared with my mom. Movies. Sappy or dramatic, comedy or romance, it didn't matter. I loved the theater and the smells when you first entered. Fresh popcorn drizzled in real butter. Candy lined the counter under glass, waiting for my anxious fingers. Mom did not care for soda pop in all its bubbly glory. No matter, I loved the popcorn and saw raisinets as a bonus. I stood in front of the marquee in the lobby, waiting for Mother to get our snacks. I felt small, staring up at the life-size figures of Richard Egan, Deborah Paget, and a handsome young man making his first screen debut. He was tall and had lips that curled slightly when he sang. He had a sexy swagger and gyrating hips that weren't even allowed on Ed Sullivan. But this was the movies. Yes, Elvis Presley would sing his heart out for millions of young fans and move his hips any old way he wanted. My mother was one of his faithful fans. Even though she was a happily married woman, when Elvis sang and looked into the camera lens, women of all ages, married or not, melted. He was handsome with his thick, unruly hair. It always had at least one strand that would work its way over one eye. Elvis could actually act, even though he had a fairly small part in Love Me Tender. The movie took place during the Civil War and was about the Reno brothers, who all went to war and left their baby brother, Elvis, home to tend the farm and take care of his mother. When the mother learned her oldest son had been killed, an error by the Confederacy, young Elvis was there not only to take care of his mother, but also his big brother's girlfriend. As you can probably guess, Elvis gets the girl. Later, spoiler alert, he loses his life in a gunfight at the end. When Elvis died, I'm here to tell you there wasn't a dry eye in the theater. Every girl put aside their popcorn, myself included, and reached for a tissue. It was awful. I struggled to hear the dialogue over all the screaming when Elvis appeared on screen. But during his death scene, I couldn't hear his final words because of all the sniffing and sobbing from girls of all ages. I hadn't seen my mother cry very often in my nine years, but she blubbered away with the rest of the female audience. My tomboy self found this crazy. It's only a movie, after all, but still the crying and sniffling went on. 
I looked up at my mother and asked if she was all right. To that, she snorted into a tissue and smiled at me. Jeez, it wasn't real, but they treated it as if Elvis had really died. That was my first experience with death on the big screen, and I got hooked. Romances, and especially those with Elvis, were my new favorites. I used my allowance to buy his single, Love Me Tender, and later learned the original name of the movie had more to do with the Reno brothers. But because of the record sales of the song going gold even before it had released, the producers changed the name to cash in on the song's popularity and sell more box office tickets. Later, when my mother and I were riding home, I excitedly recounted my favorite parts in the movie. We both decided not to tell Dad. We bawled our eyes out in the theater, and especially not to tell him a word about Elvis. It was our secret. Next is a story from Raleigh Campbell called A World War II Story. In the year 1965, I was assigned the task of starting up a new hydroelectric power plant. It had a state-of-the-art design, but until we thoroughly tested all protective devices, it was necessary to have two operators on duty at all times in case of a malfunction. The other operator was an immigrant from Lithuania. We will call him John and he told me about the experience he had during the last days of world of the war in Europe. All his immediate family had died in forced labor camps run by the Nazis. His closest living relative was his widowed grandmother who took care of him. He was about eight years old when this experience took place. They had been moved to Hungary by 1945. As Nazi Germany was collapsing, the Soviet armed forces were racing at breakneck speed to the West in order to expand their sphere of power. One of the last trains to leave Hungary for the West was commandeered by a train crew fleeing the Soviets. John and his grandmother were on that train to France. Feeling that they were far ahead of the Russians, the train stopped at a small town so the passengers could find some food. John stayed on the train while his grandmother went in search of something to eat. They received word that the Russians were close behind them, so the train crew blew the whistle and started to move. You can imagine John's feelings when he was separated from his grandmother. Twenty years later, as he related the story to me, he had tears in his eyes. So did I. His grandmother ran frantically after the train and was able to catch the last car, but was unable to get to the car where John was until five hours later when the train stopped in country controlled by the Western Allies. They arrived in France. Then John eventually migrated to America. He was later able to arrange passage for his grandmother to Los Angeles, where he lived. On the way home from the airport, 
They stopped at a grocery store for some bread. John selected four loaves and caused his grandmother to go completely ballistic. Bread was rationed in Lithuania, and anyone caught hoarding was executed by the Soviets. Grandmother spent the rest of her time in the store looking over her shoulder for the police. John was unable to convince her that it was okay. When I think back on this story, I marvel at being fortunate enough to have been born in America. I've known hardships and want. I was a child during the Depression, but I never lost my family. Our next story is by Jerry Bishop called Hoodless. As a very small child, my first memory of riding in a car is going down a country road, standing on the front seat of a Chevy two-door coupe next to my dad while he drove. That was long before the days of buckling up or car seats. We had an ancient Chevy pickup on the farm whose engine noises sounded like a flock of canaries chirping and squawking. A few years later we had a Nash sedan that resembled an inverted brown wash tub. Our neighbor had a big black Hudson, so when we passed them on the road it looked like two big beetles trudging down a road. When I reached the legal driving age, my dad allowed me to drive the family station wagon to school. When it snowed, he dutifully put chains on the rear tires for me. They were fine for short trips, but had a tendency to ruin tires if I went too fast or was too lazy to take them off for driving on dry pavement. Once I overheard my mother commenting that Dad was running a tire repair shop for his son. If one of the links in the chains broke while driving too fast, it could do a fine job of beating the paint off the fender while sounding like a machine gun. Once I managed to knock a hole in the gas tank on a 60-mile trip to Denver and had to stop and gas up every few miles to make it there and back. Fortunately, no one threw a lit cigarette anywhere near my car on that trip. When I was in high school, my parents bought a brand new Ford. I used it to get to and from school activities and on dates during my last year. It was really their car, but I used it like it was mine. At us, it had a six-cylinder that would top out at about 87 miles per hour. Believe me, I know and got great gas mileage. At that time, my best friend got a new Chevy Impala V8. The old farmer who lived on the main road to town said, when he and I cruised past on our way to school in the mornings, we were just barely touching ground at the tops of the hills. My first car was a Ford Mustang. It sold for $3,800, fully loaded off the showroom floor. We had a lot of adventures together, including getting a speeding, a driving on the shoulder, and a parking ticket, all in one day. I'm glad to say I learned my lesson. I've only had one ticket in the last 35 years. Repairing cars has also written some interesting chapters in my life. When the above-mentioned Ford had a fender crunched in, I 
decided to replace it myself. I did manage to find a good fender in a junkyard and replace it, but it was the wrong color. The hood flew up on that same car while going through Death Valley, California at a high rate of speed. You haven't really lived unless you've had a hood instantly enfold your windshield while cracking it to smithereens and completely blocking your vision while at the same time going through a desert in blazing heat. To add to the excitement, the whole phenomena also produces a loud smashing pop sound like crushing a soda can to the hundredth power. By tearing off the hood and driving with my head out the window, I was able to reach a repair shop where we removed the full hood and I drove home hoodless. Once again, I did the work myself and now had a blue Mustang with a gray fender and a white hood. There was also the time I went four-wheeling with a Ford Galaxy sedan and broke the power steering arm under the car. Bailing wire managed to hold it together until I tried to make a sharp turn and ended up in a farmer's field. They say the good Lord looks after little children and fools, and I sure wasn't a little child during any of this crazy adventure. What probably saved my life more than once was my driving skill, even though I didn't always obey the law. I honed it driving around the farm all the time as a youngster and taking driver's education in 10th grade. I would recommend that every parent see that their teenaged children take and pass a driver's education class. What are your particular car memories? I'll bet you could come up with some doozies too. Our next story is by Neva Andrews called Sunrise Over Pawnee Grasslands. Growing up on a farm, I've witnessed many a sunrise in my day, but none to equal that one over Pawnee Grasslands on a sun Saturday morning in 1995. I awoke and pulled back the curtain of the van window to behold the firmament declaring the glory of God. Further than I could see in both directions, the pre-sunrise sky was ablaze with glory. Knowing I would miss much of the show if I took time to dress, I pulled on my boots, put a jacket over my sweatsuit I had slept in, and walked to meet the rising sun. For 180 degrees, the master painter had set the morning sky aglow. A mortal painter could capture only one moment of this glory on his canvas, but God sent wave after wave of ever-changing beauty washing over my soul. We were camped out near the buttes. No noisy trucks or clanging trains broke the silence. I walked and walked, my only companion an occasional horned lark flitting beside the road. I went east until the road turned, then south, until the sun came up and the glory of the sunrise changed to the glory of the sun-bathed grasslands. To the north a rise concealed the Pawnee Buttes. Later that morning we hiked to the top of that rise and viewed the Buttes standing sentinel over the prairie. 
In our lives of TV, portable stereos, and cell phones, we need moments like these to refresh our souls. In the afternoon, our son and his wife invited me to ride with them. We saddled up and explored a small area of the vast grasslands. Some people like trail riding in the mountains, but give me the flatlands any day. How blessed we are to live where we can enjoy the great outdoors and the beauty of God's creation. Our next story is by Prairie Parson called Pearls Before Swine. I never understood that Bible verse about not casting pearls before swine until I met Frank. He was more than a man who owned pigs. His pigs owned him. By that I mean he ate and slept pigs. One day in the local hardware store, I overheard Frank telling the cashier about his pigs. His face lit up and he looked the way my wife does when she's talking about the grandkids. He was in hog heaven, if you know what I mean. I tried to join the conversation, but old Frank wasn't about to be distracted. The cashier finished the transaction and waited patiently until Frank finally took a breath. He quickly interjected, It was nice talking to you, Frank, although he hadn't said a word. Next, Frank grunted and wandered out the door. It got me to thinking about the swine verse, and I remembered the old TV show called Leave It to Beaver and the ever-present string of pearls June Cleaver wore. June and Frank would have made quite a pair. One felt at home in high heels and a dress, the other in bib overalls that had seen better days. Jesus was the one who came up with the idea of not throwing your pearls to the pigs. I think it means to be careful who you spend your time with. Some people just don't get it. They have one subject, theirs. Your likes and dislikes don't matter because they never come up. You might as well be a refrigerator for all they care about conversation. Now, Frank is a mighty fine man and I often go over there just to hear about pigs. But if I had a steady diet of the subject, I think I'd be ready to leave the table. It's the same with lots of folks. They have one subject they are passionate about, and that's what they and everyone around them talk about. As I left the hardware store that day, I made a mental note to improve my conversation skills and be interested in the lives of others, but also find friends who can talk about a variety of subjects and include me in the conversation. Who knows? I might have some brilliant thing to say someday, but never get to say it. Now, that would be a tragedy. Our next story is by B.B. Bunting called, Well, They All Look Alike. When we got married, everyone was trying to move into the country. I was fresh out of the military and my new wife came from a city. My grandma had been a homesteader, though not a very successful one, and I figured I knew all about country living. Most young couples bought a piece of land next to other young couples with the name Rural Ecstasy Estates at the end of the road. 
My wife and I, however, wanted the real thing. Our new neighbors wore peaked caps backwards with burly seeds and John Deere printed on them. Now coping with the neighbors wasn't easy, although we learned how and somehow they learned to adjust to us. Coping with the wildlife was another story altogether. Neither of us had much experience with coyotes or snakes, despite my assurances otherwise. My wife was terrified by bears, and owls made her jump. Cattle scared her up close, although she admitted she thought they looked pretty with those big soft eyes. Come on, Catherine, I told her. You know cats and dogs are friendly. Owls and cows are just animals, too. Learn how to get to know them. Yes, but they don't know me, she replied. Well, that's true. They won't trust you. Until they see you, won't harm them, I said. Then I thought maybe it wasn't such a good idea to actually try to get to know a wild animal. You could start with some of the farm animals roundabout, I said as I left for work in the city. I won't be home that night, as I called, as I left. She thought it might be lonely as I wasn't often away, so she took me at my word. Soon the yard was home to heifers, sheep, and their lambs, and various animals from the surrounding fields. They ate my beans, my strawberries, and roses, the spinach, and anything else I held dear. I put up with it. After all, we needed to feel comfortable in the country, not to mention the right-to-farm laws. So long as the neighbors saw their beasts eating our fodder, they didn't complain much. One sunny afternoon, when I was again not likely to be home for the week, Elizabeth noticed a furry stray horse had arrived in the yard. It looked curiously at her, kneeling in the flower bed, and meandered over to her. She looked up, smiled at it, and cautiously stroked its long ears. When it pushed its head down for more, she thought, what a friendly creature, how gentle it looks. Who does it belong to, I wondered, my wife mused. Thinking it over, she said aloud to nobody in particular, It isn't our neighbors. They don't have horses that I know. She went into the phone and called round. No one in the immediate area had lost a horse. No one knew who it belonged to, either. She called me. I told her we'd have to find an owner soon, or be responsible for a fairly hefty hay bill. In the meantime, the creature followed her everywhere. It even took bread and devoured it. It seemed totally at home, and sure liked my wife. At about nightfall, Evelyn, a distant neighbor, arrived with her truck, obviously worried. "'Have you seen Emma?' I've driven all over the county, and I can't find that mule anywhere. Oh, no, said Elizabeth. I haven't seen a mule. Trouble with Emma is, Evelyn went on, she will go on these rampages, travels for miles. I'm so scared someone will run into her. She has a vile temper, and she bites and kicks everyone she meets. If you see her, just be sure you don't go anywhere near her. Well, I'll have to keep looking. Elizabeth looked around to tell Evelyn about the horse, but it was nowhere to be seen. She waved goodbye and went back to weeding her flower beds. 
As soon as the truck disappeared, the horse returned and nuzzled up to my wife, braying softly. When I came home the next day, it horrified me to find a mule in the yard, obviously well content with itself. Where in heaven's name did the mule come from? I asked in alarm, knowing how unpredictable and independent they often were. Mule? asked Elizabeth, stroking the horse's snout. I couldn't find who owned this horse, though I asked everybody. Oh, a mule? And from the Elbert County Connection, Public Works Building Update. The Public Works Department plays an important role in keeping county residents safe. The mission of the Public Works Department is to provide the citizens of the county with the safest possible roadway infrastructure to improve the roadway system and take pride in the maintenance of the roadway system and the equipment used. With all that to accomplish, the Public Works Department has outgrown its current building and needs more functional working space and the equipment storage. In September 2022, construction of a new 38,000 square foot building for the department began. As of January 2023, the foundation and the frame structure of the building are complete. The next steps for the project will be to sheet and insulate the structure. The building is in Kiowa at 1330 State Highway 86 and is expected to be completed in late 2023. Thank you for joining us for the Prairie Times. My name is Heidi Pate.